Welcome to In Town Church. We're in the middle of a series on First Peter that we're obviously continuing this morning. So why don't I pray for us and we'll get started. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue to be present with us this morning. That our hearts would continue in worship of you as we hear your word and as we come to your table. Jesus, as we consider this morning what it means to carry on your mission in the world, we ask that you would give to us the gift of your Spirit to enlighten our hearts. And more than that, that our hearts would be united. That as we seek to serve you and love you better in this place, that this city would see our love for one another that you have implanted within us, that they would be drawn to you, drawn to the message of your death and resurrection on their behalf. We ask this in your name. Amen. Anybody here watch the show Parks and Rec? It's pretty good, right? It's pretty good. If you haven't seen the show, it's a sitcom uh, sort of in that newer, you know, kind of the office style sort of faux documentary about this group of very warm-hearted public servants, uh, most of whom work in the Parks and Recreation Department of Pawnee, which is this small, small town in Indiana. And the show sort of follows how they, you know, navigate the often slow, often bureaucratic world of local government in search of developing human flourishing, They're really concerned with giving the people of Pawnee a good life. And the thing that I really find interesting about the show is the way that the different groups and factions within our culture are are caricatured and paralleled. So Leslie Nope is the main character, and she is uh, an employee in this Parks and Rec department, and she's really just representative of a really good progressive. She's tender-hearted. She believes that government can and should be a force for good, that it can shape culture. And so she sees her role as a government employee to provide spaces where families and children can come and play and grow and learn. But her boss, Ron Swanson, is the exact opposite of that. He is a great libertarian. He believes that the government is a disaster and shouldn't have any say about anything. And to illustrate just how he feels, he, he has an elementary student come on a field trip and she has to give a report on why government matters. And after spending 20 minutes with Ron, her report was two words. It doesn't. That's how Ron Swanson feels about government. No, Ron thinks that culture is shaped by the individual and he believes in, in good capitalistic forces as being the driver for innovation, for things that happen, for things to get accomplished. And then there are other groups. Uh, In one episode, there's a group called the Reasonableists, and they're sort of like a Scientology-esque cult, and they're awaiting the arrival of the lizard god Zorp to come and melt the entire earth. And the Reasonableists avoid cultural formation altogether. In many ways, they are the separatists of this world, and they prefer simply to await the arrival of Zorp in their lawn chairs in the park, playing flutes and just generally being sort of harmless, crazy people. And then there's Marsha Langman. 
Marsha Langman is a, is a very small character on the show, but she's pretty larger than life, and she's a really overly caricatured member of the Christian right. And in many ways, she is, in the show, Leslie, the progressive's nemesis. Marsha Langman believes firmly that government should shape culture, but she has the exact opposite values of Leslie, and so they're always butting heads. Now, if you have seen this show or you know any of the characters I'm talking about, you, you may realize that some of these caricatures are probably offensive. They're a little broadly drawn. And I think largely they're meant to be playful. But rather than focus on what the writers of Parks and Rec specifically want us to understand about their moral universe, I would like us to use those characters, the characters they've created, as a way of developing an analogy for how the church has, does, and should relate to culture. Relating to culture for the church has been a perennially, perennially thorny issue. Words like Constantinianism and colonialism aren't so much adjectives as they are accusations. Assimilation, separation, purification, critique, commend, condemn. The church seems to embody a posture toward culture that includes all of these and none of these at the same time. There are great swaths of the church, great movements within Christianity that parallel the viewpoints of characters on Parks and Rec, but it's not even just bigger movements like mainline Christianity, evangelical Christianity, fundamentalist, Catholic, Orthodox. It's also here, right here, in our own pews. Whether we're Christian or not, everyone in this room has an opinion, has an idea, even if it's just under the hood, about how the church should relate to culture. Some of us are like Leslie Nope. We want the church to be relevant to culture, to assimilate. Perhaps we're from a Catholic worker or mainline tradition, and we have aligned ourselves with the politics of the left. And we believe that the church should push culture, push government to regulate issues of morality, like sexual, racial, economic equality. To us, human flourishing almost requires something like universal health care or emission taxes or alternative energy solutions, and we're distrustful, aren't we? We're distrustful of the Christian right, and we're dismissive of the pietistic head-in-the-sand approach of the Yoder sort of disciple uh, separatist Christianity that we see in some fringe groups here in America. But others of us are, are the Marshall Langmans, We want the church to be defensive against culture. And perhaps we're from conservative or even fundamentalist Christian backgrounds, and we have aligned ourselves with the politics of the right. We believe that the church should be pushing culture, should push government to shape culture by regulating issues of morality, like traditional family values, criminal justice, economic opportunity. And to us, human flourishing requires strong families, traditional sexual ethics, criminal justice, punishment for bad behavior, reward for good behavior. And we are distrustful and dismissive of those on the Christian left. And though we understand the impulse of the separatists, we wish that they would get their heads out of the ground and help us turn this country around. Still others of us, though, are a mix of Ron Swanson and the Zorp-awaiting reasonableists. We want the church to just be kept pure from culture. Perhaps we have a background in someone like Stanley Hauerwas or some some of the Anabaptist movements that he has helped start with his ideas of purity 
And we believe that the church should stand in prophetic criticism of culture and government. And to us, the church's mission is, mission is drawn most clearly in the death of Christ at the hands of the empire. So human flourishing happens when the empire is diminished and kept at bay. And we believe that the Christian left and right have tainted themselves with an unquenchable thirst for power. These three positions really sum up almost the entirety of Christian history as the church has tried to relate to culture. And James Davison Hunter, who's a sociologist at University of Virginia, has summed up these approaches of attempts at being relevant to, defensive against, or purified from culture. This is how the church has tried to solve this issue. Guess what? We're not going to figure this out in the next 20 minutes, okay? These issues are complex, and they're emotional, and they're extremely important, and that's why they run so deeply in our bones, and when we butt heads with each other about it, it, it sparks can fly. And I don't want to turn this into a lecture on the history of Christian cultural engagement. Rather, I brought all of this up, all of the different camps of Christian ideas about how the church relate to culture, simply as a way of alerting us to the fact that we all have an idea. We all have assumptions about how it should go, but often those assumptions go unchecked. And so when we come to a passage like our text this morning from 1 Peter, what we end up doing is we draw pictures on the bathroom mirror that reflect exactly what we think should be happening, rather than allowing the text to speak to us. If you've been with us since the beginning of our series in 1 Peter, the verses that we have here actually sound very familiar as to the way that we actually started. In the beginning of this series, we looked at two short verses. And if you'll remember, I said that those two verses really served to set up the entire letter. And this morning, we're looking again at two short verses, and they sort of reiterate the first two verses. Only now, they're serving to set up the rest of the letter, because Peter is moving from a discussion about identity to an exhortation as to how that identity gets lived out. But if you'll notice, he doesn't begin by lording it over his readers. He doesn't say, as an apostle, I demand that you live X, Y, or Z. No, he identifies with them. Beloved, he says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires warring against your soul and to live such good lives among the nations among the Gentiles, which by that he means the people outside the church, that they will see your good works and glorify God. Peter is calling this diverse, spread-out community to a life of witness. And it's a witness, as we'll see, that in Peter's vision for how the church relates to culture actually breaks down and transcends our typical triad of categories being relevant to defensive against, or purified from culture. In fact, Peter's call to witness disallows us the options of revolt, withdrawal, or assimilation. None of those things are available to us in terms of Peter's theology of how the church relates to the world. And it's really a pretty difficult dance. The reason the church has argued about this for so long and continued to screw it up in so many ways is because it's really, really difficult to know what it means to be born again, to be somehow exilic, to be somehow foreign and yet not. Theologian Miroslav Volf sums it up this way, Christians are not outsiders seeking to become insiders to culture 
or to maintain strenuously their status as outsiders. Rather, they are insiders who have been diverted from their culture by being born again. Did you catch that? Being a part of the church doesn't make you outside, nor does it make you really inside. You're sort of both and neither at once. So with that in the background, I would like us to just look quickly at three things. The non-reactiveness of witness, the beauty of witness, and the patience of witness. Peter begins here for us what will become a long section of exhortation by urging his readers to abstain from sinful desires that he says war against their souls. And the idea carries a connotation of fleshly desire, and it's interesting to me that if you were to read mostly post-Puritan commentators in a very specific strain of Christianity, you would come away with the idea that this is mostly about not having sex. We have smushed this, this concept of fleshly desire into sexual desire. But actually, the idea of fleshly desire has less to do with matter and physicality and much more to do with a former way of being a way of living in the world that Peter's readers used to engage in. And given the context of Peter's letter, his concern over sinful desires that war against the soul is directed much more toward a natural human reaction to exile. Remember, he's writing to people that are in exile, that have been stripped away of any political clout. And the natural human reaction to exile is stress. It's fear, anger, and retaliation. Peter's telling these churches that since they exist as foreigners, as resident aliens, dispersed exiles, the, te- the temptation will be to react, to return punch for punch, to retaliate or to embrace perhaps instead a victim mentality, to live in an echo chamber of woe is me. And this is where those of us that occupy more conservative corners of Christianity need to perk up because despite the fact that we feel like aliens, like exiles, we have to realize that according to Peter, revolt, even mental and emotional revolt against our culture is not one of the options available to us. Our need to fight for our rights to assert our position or to bellyache about how, we've, how sidelined we've become, how bleak our culture looks, arises oftentimes from our own sinful desires warring against our souls. Now, I am not saying that Christian witness does not require action. It absolutely requires action. What I am saying is that reaction in a negative sense, allows stress from outside the system to direct where that system is going rather than for the direction to be internal. So if you find yourself living in anxious crisis toward the world around you more often than not, Peter is saying this arises from fleshly desire, from the desire for control, for security, and it's warring against your own soul. Do you know how to stop living in reaction? It's found in embracing your identity that Peter has labored long to describe. If you are a part of the church, you are being built into a spiritual house. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You have been found, revived, and reconstituted by the mercy of God. Your identity is not based on what you reject in culture. 
Your identity is not based on how you do things differently than your neighbors. It is based in the fact that once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy, it's based in Jesus. Christian witness is non-reactive because it is based in the action of God. But Christian witness is also beautiful. Peter tells his churches to live such good lives among the Gentiles, among the pagans, the people that were not part of the church, that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And here, Peter is talking to those of us who tend to be part of those removed, separatist, purified from culture parts of the church. Because if you'll notice, what he's saying includes the fact that if you're a part of the church, you are called to what? Live among the nations, among people who do not share your beliefs and indeed may be hostile to them. And this harkens back to the sayings of Jesus that we read this morning, that those he called to follow him were to display themselves like a city on a hill, like a lamp on a stand. And what Peter is telling us is that when the church actually lives out her witness rightly in the midst of people who do not share her beliefs, that eventually the beauty of that witness will cause all people to glorify God. Next week, we're going to dive down more as Peter flushes out how this witness gets lived, and we're going to see that it's not easy. But essentially what he's getting at here is that the church is to live a good life in a way that actually seems good to those outside the church. Maybe not immediately, but eventually. A good life that seems good, that appears to be good, that is beautiful. Living a beautiful witness requires living among people who do not share the same beliefs, the same values, the same concerns as the church to a certain level. The church cannot simply hide away. And what's happening in our culture right now is that living within pluralism can cause one of these three reactions that are so ready for us to enter into. When stress enters the system, when you're faced with people who think differently than you, believe differently than you, it's easy to either flee in fear to remain pure, assimilate completely so as to go unnoticed, or to get your back up and fight to retain cultural power or control. And again, I can't say it enough, Peter does not allow us any of those options. As we said at the very beginning of this series, to live in exile is to live out the vulnerability modeled for us in Jesus, to live out of control, to be subject, to live in this sort of vulnerability with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and all the rest, is to live such good lives that those around the church will take notice. Witness is beautiful when it doesn't react. It's beautiful when it stays true to the mission it was given. This sort of peace can only come, again, from what? An identity cemented in the merciful grace of God. But this sort of non-reactive, beautiful witness also takes a great deal of patience. Because it's a beauty that can fly under the radar because why? We are following a Messiah that Isaiah tells us had no beauty that anyone would be attracted to him. Jesus tells his disciples, the world will not understand you because they did not understand me. So Peter also tells us, not just that the witness will be beautiful, that eventually people will glorify God, but he also says that the good living of the church, the very thing that we're supposed to be doing if you're a part of the church, can actually result in accusations of wrongdoing. 
And here's where those of us that inhabit the more liberal corners of Christianity, those who tend to assimilate to avoid confrontation, really need to perk up. Christian witness is at some level always going to collide with cultural comfort. Prophetic distance cannot be reserved only for those things that our culture also finds distasteful. And it's when this collision happens, as it happened to Peter's churches, that Christian witness must be solidly placed within that identity that Peter's been talking about all along, an identity of being found and healed by God's mercy. And in a way, this patience is another form of non-reaction. The church cannot reduce to rubble the rituals that have formed her simply because they are misunderstood by those outside the church. The accusations of wrongdoing that the early church uh, was, was being uh, leveled were accusion, uh, accusations of largely incest, cannibalism, and disturbing the peace and order of the empire. They were accused of incest because they referred to each other as brother and sister. And they loved each other in a way that no one else in their culture and society had ever seen or experienced. They were accused of cannibalism. Why? Because they claimed to be feasting on the body and blood of their God. They were accused of disturbing the peace and good order of the empire because they refused to worship the emperor and engage in the imperial cult by supporting the financial system undergirding it. But notice, being accused of evil doing for being the church isn't happening because the church is asserting herself as different. It's happening because the church is so attentively following another king. Witness is not based on trying to figure out how different you can be if you're part of the church. It's because you're so enamored with this new identity you've been given, you can't live any other way. Witness requires patience because living out the message of Jesus in a non-reactive and beautiful way isn't usually immediately effective. In fact, Peter says it may not be effective until the last day, until the day of God's visitation at the end of all things. And that's not a call to concession. That's not a call to give up. It's a call to steadiness. This life of witness, what's been called faithful presence, is rooted in two things. One is the identity that we've been exploring throughout this entire series, that the church is exilic and in many ways foreign, but her identity is not formed in a negative way to her surrounding culture. No, the identity of the church is formed in the radical mercy and love of God. From the very beginning, Peter has referred to these people that he's writing to as chosen exiles dispersed. The church exists because she has been brought to life in the resurrection of Jesus. That is the foundation of the church's witness. But secondly, faithful presence, this non-reactive, beautiful, patient witness is also rooted in another home. But here's the clincher. There is a prevalent caricature of Christian theology that many Christians and non-Christians believe about the church, and that is that the church is waiting to be snatched up, to leave this place and to be raptured to a different place called heaven. But Peter's theology is not uh, rooted in another place. It is rooted in in the resurrection of Jesus and the radically reshaped eschatology, those end times, those last days playing out before him. And here's how. See, the Jewish people marked time in two ages. There was the present age and the age to come. The age to come was when the resurrection would happen. It was when God would finally vindicate his people. 
and bring an end to all things. Everything would be all tied up and everyone would live happily ever after. So when Peter and the other apostles see Jesus resurrected, it's not simply shocking because he came back to life. It's shocking because he came back to life in the present. It's not the end times yet. It's not the future, which means that 1 Peter and really much of the New Testament is written against the backdrop of the church existing in the present as an outpost of God's future. You see that the church is not maintaining a faithful witness only to be carried off to another place? No, the church is waiting for the complete renewal of this place. So when the church talks about another home, it's not another location, it's another time. It's a time when the future, what what the church represents now, actually collides with the present fully, and Christ is all in all. All right, so what does this mean? For those of you that are outside of the church, first of all, you should know that those of us that call ourselves Christians are aware that we really haven't always gotten this right, how to relate to culture, how to view ourselves in terms of the wider world. We get our hair up, we get impatient. And there are times that we're going to need you to look past us in order to see the truth about Jesus. And yet at the same time, we also hope that you'll be able to look right at us and see Jesus. Not just because we may have figured out how to live good lives for five minutes, but because you'll be able to see exactly what kind of broken, deeply broken people Jesus loves. That he embraces all sorts of people, even the most broken. But also, if you're not yet a Christian, if you're not yet part of the church, then recognize that there are things that we do here that are not going to make sense to you right away. And and we know that. They're not going to make sense right away, and that's okay. Our hope is that enough beauty shines through what we do as a community here that you'll want to keep investigating even the strangest of our rituals and habits. And for those of you who are part of the church, recognize that being a corporate living witness that is non-reactive, beautiful, and patient isn't difficult. It's impossible. To live in this sort of vulnerability requires a foundation that none of us possess within ourselves. It is a radical open-handedness that is built on the merciful love of Jesus, and it is mortared with the corporate rituals of sacrament, worship, and prayer. And that's why in a moment, we're going to come to this table and be fed again. We are going to be fed because we cannot feed ourselves. We cannot live out this witness ourselves. We must be rooted in the mercy and love of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, would you give us your spirit? Give us wisdom as we seek to live as witnesses in your world. Give us joy love, peace, and unity with one another. Jesus, we ask that this outpost of your kingdom would be beautiful, that we would shine like a lamp on a stand, that we would draw people to this place, not because of how great we are, but because we are so enamored with you. 
We ask this in your name. Amen.